Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Music History Project. Today, we are going to be starting another segment in our Industry Heroes collection of podcast episodes, and we are going to be talking all about pickups. We will be hearing from Seymour Duncan and Bill Lawrence. Hello, and welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Mike Mullins. Dan Del Fiorentino. And Ashley Allison. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. That collection is over 4,500 interviews and constantly growing. If you'd like to learn more about the program or view any interviews that aren't featured, visit namm.org library. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another exciting episode of the uh, Music History Project podcast. It's uh, always fun to uh, hang out with these two and uh, share some of our great interviews from the uh, NAM Oral History Program. What's really extra fun is this series that we started several years ago where we pick a couple of uh, industry heroes and tie them together. This is a particularly fun one for us because what will we do without the great pickups in your electric guitars and basses? Now, this might sound a little uh, strange for some people like saxophone players, um, but um, I, what I like about it is it gives us an opportunity to really dive in and understand this whole segment that is very important to the music uh products industry, but also, obviously, if you're a guitarist, this is your bread and butter. So uh, <laughs> guitarists are going to love this, but I'm hoping that other instrumentalists and just listeners of music will come to appreciate the fine art of creating a pickup in your electric guitar bass. That's the hope today. It's a really cool subject, too, because the pickup is something that you could argue really defines the tone of an electric guitar. And there's been so many made and so many different makers of pickups. And sometimes just the littlest thing can change so much. And we're definitely hearing from two of the biggest names in pickup development, Seymour Duncan and Bill Lawrence. I mean, it doesn't get <laughs> it's just so cool that we've got the interviews in the collection to hear from both of them today. Yeah, and it's also just a great, like, you know, kind of dissection of the instrument itself. Because I think, you know, unless you're a guitarist or you're just very well versed in all instruments and how they're made, you don't necessarily know of or think of the pickup when you hear, the, when you, you know, look at the guitar. Um, and so, kind of realizing this little piece is such a pivotal part of the instrument and can really make, you know, the difference in that sound. Uh, you know, it's just a fun little, uh, in-depth topic to go into, I think. And of course, the pickup has been a part of the electric guitar since the beginning of the electric guitar. <laughs> and as Mike pointed out, there are a lot of different types. It seems like there are a lot of boutique makers of pickup um, in the last, I'd say, 30 or, or so years have really picked up, as it were. And <laughs> I think that that's really kind of fun, too, is to try to ch chase down some of those innovations. And we have two of the greatest uh, to talk to uh, today or to share their stories uh, from their interviews. And I'm really happy about that because um, we're going to discover some sort of secrets. And that's fun, too, because I believe um, it's sort of that, do you hear what I hear? You know, once you learn something, you hear stuff differently. And I think that by the end of this podcast, many of you may be listening to 
your favorite recordings a little bit differently and hopefully deciphering a little bit aha okay i get why that sounds differently than a different guy playing a different guitar so i'm kind of hopeful that that'll be part of what comes from here because these are two great guys too i really enjoy getting to know both of them awesome well let's just jump right into it uh first up we're going to be hearing from seymour duncan from seymour duncan uh and he's going to be talking about um really how he got into music um, some guitars that he was playing, and where his love for developing pickups came from. So uh, I started playing, I was playing in clubs when I was like 14, 15 years old, and I was, I was playing uh, with a guy named Ray Coleman, who was a pretty well-known rockabilly guy, and I'm this little whiz guitar player playing behind him, and this guy's like in his 40s, and um, every time I would leave, I'd have to go into the kitchen or go outside because I couldn't stay in the actual uh, nightclub where everybody was, you know being underage and then they um, um, I'd go into the kitchen you know make cheese steak sandwiches eat the french fries and I was I loved all the cooks in the kitchen because we were buddies you know so anyway um, I started playing uh, all the shore points like every summer we'd be playing and uh, like Tony Marks uh, which is where LeVon and the Hawks and the band was formed for Bob Dylan and uh, there was a movie called uh, Eddie and the Cruisers and that was based around Tony Martz. And um, there was a guy named Johnny Caswell, who was uh, uh, a lot of great, great Philadelphia bands. I was seeing, and I was playing in the same clubs like Paul Anka, Frank Sinatra Jr., um, Gail Martin, Dean Martin's daughter, she was doing stuff. I was working with uh, Bobby Comstock, had a record, Hey Let's Dance. Uh, Bill Haley and the Comets uh, were still playing around back then. <clears throat> then I started, um, doing a lot more more and more playing and everything. And then uh, I went out, I was using my little silver tone guitar, and then I finally uh, bought a, my first Stratocaster. And I go into my friend's house, we're in a basement having a rehearsal, and I just got this brand new Strat. Anyway, we, uh, he wanted to see it. He, was, he played guitar a little bit and a bass player, and I was a bass player also, so I got in a band because they needed a bass player, not a guitar player, so my first gig in a band was uh, playing bass. So after a bit, uh, they fired me as a bass player and made me the lead guitar player, you know, which is kind of funny. And back when I was playing, you'd be on stage and all the amplifiers were in front of you. Did anybody remember that? Because the amps were real little, and so you put them in front of you so you wouldn't be, you could hear yourself, you know, and everything. So uh, I got my, my Strat, I'm in the basement, and we had Fender amplifiers, and sometimes if you have the polarity reversed on that little switch in the back of it, you know what happens? You get zapped. So my guy, he's standing up on the step, he was sitting on the step, I handed him my guitar, he handed me his bass. We both got zapped, man. I dropped the Stratocaster, and the jack that usually is at an angle in the front of the guitar got broken out of it. And so, and the, uh, my strap button just got like bent sideways <laughs> and, the thing, and I was sick. I broke out of this, you know, cold sweat and it's like my uh, uh, baby just got damaged, you know. But I said, man, I'll fix it. You know, I have to fix it. So I got into um, uh, taking the guitar apart and fixing the jack and it broke the wiring inside. So that was like my first repair job. So it may have been fate or whatever. I had no idea what happened. But after that, um, 
I picked up a Telecaster that I got from Roy Buchanan, who's a 56 Telecaster, and I was playing at a country uh, club in uh, Vineland, no, uh, Bridgeton, New Jersey. And uh, I'm playing in there, and they had a guest singer came in that wanted to uh, play guitar, you know. And we were doing the Sunday jam section. I was the only guy with a guitar, and, and I never wanted to let anybody borrow my guitar, you know. So everybody said, come on, let them use it, you know. So they used my guitar, and they were really strumming, you know, because they were used to an acoustic, and I was using A10 or banjo strings. Because back in my day, you couldn't get, you know, your 9 to... 42s or all that, you had to buy black diamond strings, which were pretty heavy gauge, throw away the bottom E string, move all the strings up, and then put an A tenor banjo on the high E string. And that's how we would do it. And I learned that from Roy Buchanan. That's what Roy Buchanan used to do. Uh, James Burton apparently used to use three A tenor banjos for E, B, and G. So he, I mean, that's how he was doing all that Hello Mary Lou, Traveling Man, and all that kind of stuff. So anyway, the high E string got wrapped around the lip of this bridge pickup and it was wedged into the coil. So I get this pickup back, or the guitar back, and I said, what happened here? I could feel six strings here, but I could only see five here because the one was like lodged underneath and you couldn't really see it. You strum it, you only hit five strings. And then I, I go to the bridge pickup, nothing. It was like dead. And I had to use the rhythm pickup, which is another pickup that would go in this area. and. Back then, the tele pickups weren't really potted that well in a wax solution to, to, to reduce the microphonics if you're playing. I was using a, a Gibson Maestro fuzz phase, a fuzz, fuzz tone, I forget the name of it. But uh, that was used to uh, do, we were doing satisfaction by the Rolling Stones. You had to do that. And when I used that with the, the rhythm pickup, it would just squeal so bad. So I had to go in like the back room, dressing room, to play that lick during the song so I wouldn't feed back. So that Monday, I'm in school, and uh, I took my guitar all apart, and I'm in biology class, dissecting a frog. And next to the frog was this like little thing with two wires sticking out of it, and it was my, my bridge pickup from the guitar. You know. So I'm like watching for the teacher. She would make a round, and I'd slip this pickup under the microscope, and then I would look and try to see what was going on. I took the string off of it, and all the black wax was coming off of it. Then I kept pulling wire and it kept breaking. I'd take more wire off of it, it would keep breaking. And I said, oh man. And I get this tap on the shoulder, you know, it's like, I got caught, man. And I said, Teach, and I said, you know, this is my, my important guitar pickup that I use when I play at night, you know, and uh, it's broken, I'm just trying to fix it. She says, well, come after school. So I went after school and I started taking it all apart and everything. And then uh, my uncle worked for Texaco and he was a chemist, and I showed him what I was taking off. And it was 42 plain enamel magnet wire. So all you technical guys out there, that's an that's a important term, you know. But the magnet wire is what is wrapped around, uh, there's a series of magnets, little rod magnets, and it's wrapped around it many, many times. And that is what is basically a uh, passive pickup, or your electronic pickup. And very traditional, the old fender pickups are all hand wound. So I decided, you know, hand wound, I, I could do that. You know, I can make a machine. And my uncle says, yeah, you need some kind of machine to rotate the pickup. And I'm thinking, what can I use? I brainstorm. I went into my mom's uh, TV and had the record player on the left-hand side of it. So I pulled the record player out, out of the thing. I made this, like, cardboard box to sit it in. And that was going to be my coil winder, you know, an old record player. 
Back then, the record players went from 16, 45, 33 and a third, and 78. So we had it all, man. I had all the gears, man. I was ready. So I made a block of wood, and I mounted a block of wood on that little nipple thing on top of the turntable. You guys, the young guys, probably don't even know what a turntable is. You're used to <laughs> CDs. In fact, my, my youngest son found one of my albums. He said, God, look at the size of this CD. You know, he didn't, he didn't realize it was, a, it was a record, you know. So uh, anyway, here and there. So anyway, I mounted this block, I mounted the pickup, I had little pinholes to uh, mount the bobbin. The bottom of the flat work has three pivot points. You can see them actually here where the three screws are. And um, so those were mounted onto this block wood. So I told my keyboard player, okay, turn it on, and I had this spool wire. And normally you wind from left to right or right from left when you're doing hand winding. Um, but I had to wind it, you know, the, the, the bobbin was turning this way, so I had to wind up and down. And so he turns it on, you know, 16 RPMs, man. It's slow, it's like one turn. I said, John, man, this is gonna take me days, man. I said, I'm trying to fill it up. See that line on the bobbin? You could see where the old coil was and then the lacquer and wax line, so you could see where I, I tried to fill it to, you know. So I'm winding this thing, so my hand's like going up and down, my wrist is like burning, you know, from just going up and down. I said, man, I can't, I can't do it this way. I said, 33 and a third. So a little bit faster. So I thought, I thought that was pretty good, you know. Then uh, I said, no, man, go to 45. So 45, it's getting a little bit better. I, I had good control. I had, you know, good tension. It was winding off really pretty good and winding the coil real nice. It looked real even. I said, John, man, this, my arm's getting tired, man. We gotta speed this up. So he went to 78, and it started you know, spinning pretty good. And the whole pickup and the block of wood went flying off, hit the side of the, uh, the Craftsman cabinet. It broke the lid, the lip off the top of the bobbin here, and I was like dying. I said, what am I gonna do? I said, I need to do something, because I gotta I got play this guitar Thursday night, you know? Because I was playing, I was in high school, playing from nine o'clock to two in the morning than having to get up Friday morning at six to get to school by 7.30, you know? So I, I had, to, had to do it, because that was my, my work, you know? So anyway, I didn't know what to do, uh, make it quick here. The, uh, the pickup material, it's called vulcanized fiber, and that's what most all the fender bobbins are made from, it's a, it's a compressed paper. And I'm thinking, where have I seen this stuff before? You know, this mine's broken, I, I don't have any. Then I looked in the corner, my drummer's drum case. Okay, all the drum cases back then were made of vulcanized fiber. And I said, you know what? He's not gonna miss this. So I cut an inch strip all the way around. It took me like an hour with a little hacksaw to cut all the way around this like bass drum head, uh, the case lid. So I had to cut that off. And then um, the guy never knew about it. So I had to sand it so it looked pretty clean and stuff. So that was my, my original like first pickup I actually built. So I had to drill each hole, I made pencil marks, and I traced the old holes from the old pickup. So I got everything uh, drilled out properly, and then uh, got the pickup, and I actually overwound it. I took my time, I, I went back to 45 RPMs, and uh, rested in between. So I finally wound the pickup, so that was my first pickup. And then I was playing at uh, Tony Martz, and I was playing there with Robbie Robertson, Levon and the Hawks, all those bands. We had to female Beatles playing in one corner, and uh, Roy Buchanan was playing across the street, and next door to me was a band called the Carroll Brothers, and uh, it was a part of a group called the Fendermen, who had a record called Mule Skinner Blues. 
and they all played uh, just great. Then two doors down were the Fenderman, the original Fenderman playing. And I walked into the club and I see all these showmans leaning back. They had all the, the Fender, the blonde Fender reverb units. Then they were all playing, playing at blonde strats, blonde P-Bass, and blonde Jazzmaster. And that was the coolest looking. They had the Nehru suits on, you know. Oh, they're all like button up here real spiffy. So seeing that, it was just, I said, man, this is what I want to do. You know, I want to get in a band, you know, like that. So I, I had a, a band called uh, The Sparkle, which was managed by Tommy Tatler, who did the Dovells, Dupree's, a lot of Philadelphia bands. And he put us on tour with the Shirelles. So we were touring all up and down, uh, like North Carolina, South Carolina, Virginia, Washington. Then we went to Ohio. We were up in Cleveland, Lima, Ohio. And, uh, with the Shirelles. So that was uh, Seymour Duncan talking just a little bit about uh, the, his origin story, if you will, of how he uh, came into the pickups. And I love the story about him getting basically electrocuted <laughs> with his uh, guitar Yikes. and then having to figure that out. I'll <laughs> learn one way or the other, right? <laughs> yeah, it's one way to jump into it, I guess, right? <laughs> He has such a great personality. You know, we're so lucky mm -hmm. in the music industry to hang out with him a couple of times a year at the NAMM shows. And he's always got his guitar. He's always sitting in on some jam somewhere and always just so cordial and just, you know, wants to be a rock and roll guy. You know, I, I mm -hmm. just love that. And uh, so so his story basically began uh, the, his pickup company in Santa Barbara, 1976. And so we're going to kind of... Um, step back in time a little bit as we introduce Bill Lawrence, who comes from a completely different background and a completely different era. He was born in Germany in 1931 and started playing the uh, jazz guitar to the point where I think he actually uh, became an endorsee for the Framus uh, Guitar Company in Germany. Um, and while being an endorsee or a durser, uh, he... Um, he started mucking around a little bit with the pickup saying, you know, I wonder if it can do this. I wonder if we can make it a little bit louder. I wonder if there's a way to get rid of some of the issues that uh, I, were, I were having with this. So he started playing around and um, interestingly enough, um, they hired him and he said, oh, this is a nice gig. So he uh, worked <laughs> with them for a little bit. And then I think around 1968, Eight, I think I'm not exactly sure, but around 1968 to about 72, he worked for the Gibson company in um, Kalamazoo, Michigan. And I think that's really where his career started uh, as far as his influence on what he was able to do with the pickup. And um, before long, he designed what is now known as the super humbucker and um, helped with a lot of uh, the electronics and the redesign for like the SG, uh, the G3, the G1, um, the Ripper bass. He did a lot of uh, interesting work uh, for that company during that time. And this might be kind of a good time to talk a little bit about the humbucker because uh, it's going to be mentioned again um, by Bill and then kind of throughout the rest of this podcast. Um, and feel free, you guys, to chime in Um with uh, with your thoughts, but I'll I'll say it the simple way is um, our very first interview we ever conducted for the oral history program was with the president of Gibson during this era in, in the fifties uh, named Ted McCarty and. 
uh, Ted tells this great story during his interview that they were getting all kinds of um, feedback from musicians saying that these um, pickups that they had are just screaming. They're just, they would start kind of take off and there was no stopping them. Um, and the feedback was horrible and um, the buzzing was very annoying and their the electronics just needed to be improved so um he tells the story that he went to one of his engineers it turned out to be seth lover um and a couple of weeks later so says the story of from ted's point of view <laughs> seth walks into his office and said puts this device on his desk and say okay ted here's your humbucker it'll buck the hum and there we go. Um, now, the, what's cool is there's been a lot of different variations of that, but that's probably the most um, famous, if I if I can say it that way, um, pickup, which is why we're going to be hearing about it throughout. And then a little bit later on, I would like to talk a little bit more about Seth Lover because it was a very interesting guy as well. But um, I think that that kind of gives a premise a little bit. Thoughts about that, Mike? Yeah, I think you said it best. And I think Ted's story says it best. It bucks the hum. <laughs> <laughs> so let's just jump right back into uh, these interviews and hear from Bill Lawrence. Um, he's going to be talking about his family's background and how he got into music. I grew up about eight miles south of Cologne at the Rhine River. My father played mandolin and guitar. For my mother's family, nobody played. They had come to the Rhineland in 1923. My mother grew up in Odessa, Russia. And before, in, by 1914, they went to France, and in 1923, they came to Germany. Now, my father's family was always in Germany. Westphalian um, part north of Cologne, north, northeast of Cologne. But I grew up, basically I was born in the same year when the electric guitar, the first electric guitar came out. All comes back 1931. Is that right? <laughs> when we go in history, that was probably Adolf Reckenbacher was involved there. Um, I call him Bokamp, some, uh, some people call him Beecham and Barth. That started at first with Hawaiian guitars, with the lap steel. Did you have uh, brothers and sisters that also play instruments? I played, as, as a child, I wanted to become a violinist. I wanted to play Bach. Bach is for me the ultimate. But I also was heavily involved in astronomy and building rockets. And when I was 12 years, I had my first rocket-propelled bicycle and my left hand was seven times broken. My little finger didn't move right. So I switched with 14 years or 15 years age, I, I switched to guitar. 
just as a substitute, because I wanted to play trumpet. I wanted to play like Roy Eldridge, my idol. By that time I was an interpreter for the U.S. forces stationed in Germany, and I heard jazz. Well, it happened many years later that I played with Roy Eldridge for several years. Is that right? Little jazz. Wow. That was after I came to America. But the first time I met Roy was in 1954, when he came with Norman Grenz to Germany, jazz at the Philharmonic. And I had a show in one of the concert halls in Hamburg, and they were in the other hall. And we ran into each other in a jazz club. He came in with Illinois Jacquet, Dizzy Gillespie and Roy, and Dizzy played drums. <laughs> Roy played trumpet, Illinois Jacquet, then and I played guitar. That was the first time. When I came to America, naturally, Roy came up and said, Hey, you're here. I need a guitar player. Plays the old-fashioned rhythm guitar and solo work. But at that time, I was already involved in designing instruments. And there again, basically, my start in America, when I came to America, I did not come with guitar pickups. I came with an electrified piano. That was, in combination with a Fender Twin Reverb, could stand up, according to Elmer Bernstein, with a Bösendorfer concert grant, a 12-foot grant. You know, big Bösendorfer, 12-foot. Right. Um, what gave you the idea to do that? It's almost impossible to record a concert grant with microphones. Because what you record is the reflection of the, the cover. Um, Several microphones, they started with Dr. Schoeps, they used the, the Neumann condenser, they used AKG double condensers, etc., and still had problems with the magnetic design. You can, every string the string does can be put on tape except much, much more than what the piano, what the soundboard can reproduce. Same with an acoustic guitar. So we have to filter the electric pickup, the magnetic pickup, and put a notch in the same way a soundboard would duplicate it. So that led to, how did you figure out how to do that electronically? I have several patents that deal with double impedance. The high-end low impedance and the low-end high impedance. This can be, it's, all, it's also a way how certain inductive notch filters work, that you can shape the Fourier spectrum of an instrument the way you want it. Naturally, you have to take in consideration that we know about cable capacitance, what cable to use, how long, what the capacitance is. 
and we have to know the load resistance. When everything is right, we can. Mm. On a guitar it's complicated because we don't know the cable what the guitar player is using. And with the cable length, we change the total spectrum of the guitar. So given a prediction, how does a certain guitar with a certain pickup sound, we cannot. I know some people do, but it is not correct. Does the length of the cable change the impedance? Uh, the resonant frequency is not subject to impedance. It's the guitar pickup is an inductor and the cable is a tubular capacitor. Now the impedance or the inductive reactance on the, on the pickup increases with frequency and the capacitive reactance of the cable decreases with frequency. And there comes that point where they cross, which is the resonance. And at the resonant frequency, it depends now if you go in series or in parallel. Either you have infinite resistance or you have zero resistance. Zero not quite possible because the inductor, the pickup, also has a resistance. So at that moment, at resonance, the resistance is equal to the impedance of the pickup. Hmm. Interesting. Now, without a cable, without a capacitor, there is no resonance. Sometimes there comes the question using 500 kilo ohm controls on humbucking pickups and 250 kilo ohm on single cards. It's not a correct answer either. A higher impedance single coil requires higher resistance controls. And if you take a pickup that is designed by some of the very few that knew electronics, it was Raymond Butts on the country gentleman Gretsch pickup, where you could use 100 kilo ohm controls and you had no losses because the impedance was and the inductive reactance was low. The inductance was below 1.5 Henry. Well, on most humbuckers, it starts at 4.4 and goes up to 8, 9 Henry. On the other hand, single car pickups have an inductance, no, 2.2, 2.5. Some of the P90s go up to 6.4 Henry. Again, there's a single car where you need 500 kilo ohm control, so you lose your high end. But also with every pickup, when you reduce the resistance, you get a better harmonic spectrum, you get brighter. But instead of saying, well, with, like Jimi Hendrix did it, he used a high capacitance cable on stage and in the recording studio for some nice effects, he used a very short cable, low capacitance. And he once told me and said, well, my cable has a built-in amplifier that boosts me the frequencies and the, the sound I need. I said, no, it's just the resonant frequencies are shifted there, that you have during resonance about two to three times the voltage than you have on the other frequencies. Hmm. But players don't want to hear about technique. They don't want to hear about inductance, they don't want to hear. 
they are taught by the industry that the DC resistance gives them the sound, which is absolutely meaningless. It's the same if I tell somebody, well, the size of your head gives you your IQ. But in the, in the, a lot of players are not very well educated in mathematics and other things, though some players are. I met once Tholomeus Monk and he was excellent mathematician and several other musicians that were excellent mathematicians. So once again, that was Bill Lawrence and before him, Seymour Duncan. Uh, just a quick shout out to the NAM website. If you'd like to see both of these in interviews in their entirety, we actually have both of them posted on there. Um, so you can head over to namnamm.org slash library and search for either of these guys and their full interviews will pop up for you. Also, while you're there, check out that interview with Ted McCarty. It is the first one ever. Um, which is historical in its own in its own right, but it's just the stories from someone like that are very cool to hear. So I highly recommend checking that out while you're on the NAM website. You know, we don't talk about it a whole lot, but there are obviously a lot of people that we haven't been able to interview. Um, Ted being uh, our first in 2000 uh, meant that anyone who passed away before that would just un, you know, couldn't do it. So. Um, I regret that a little bit, obviously. I kind of wish that I had my video camera uh, in 1918 when um, <laughs> Thomas Edison came to the NAMM show. Um, I, I was around. I just didn't have a camera. Um, but um, but that leads me to, uh, I would love to make a few comments about Seth Lover, um, if you guys would be so kind. Uh, he was born in 1910 and passed away in 1997, which made it impossible for me to meet him. But... I greatly admire him, as many people uh, in the music industry have. Uh, what a dynamic person he was. And interestingly enough, he, was, he had two careers sort of simultaneously his entire life. One with the U.S. Army. He uh, first enlisted in the 1930s um, and then went back during World War II. And then all throughout his career, he was associated with the Army doing this project or that project. Uh, a lot of electronics, a lot of radio analysis, things like that, which, of course, got him into radio repair um, after he, uh, he got out of the service the first time. Um, and he started a little shop in Kalamazoo, Michigan, which was right around the corner from... Orville Gibson and his clan uh, having this great success building musical instruments. So uh, it was inevitable that they would get together. And so they did. So um, I think in the, in the forties, um, Seth already was working on electronics, uh, but it wasn't really until 1955 and the humbucker uh, that was applied mostly, most successfully to the Les Paul guitar that uh, Seth really came into his own. And I think after that, he had his own workshop. Uh, he worked on things like the very first fuzz tone. Um, he, you know, he, he just a very interesting guy with sort of the, that uh, engineering mentality you got a problem let's fix it you want to do this okay let's figure it out and i think um the uniqueness of that situation uh, applied to um 
his cleverness. You know, I mean, he was sort of really the right person at the right time uh, for the right job. And I think that that's really kind of why so many people like Seymour and Bill and others really uh, admire the, the man's work. Um, interestingly enough, in addition to all of the electronic stuff, there's also a fun little story about Seth Lover actually designing the Flying V. <laughs> um, that's a famous uh, guitar that Gibson introduced in the late 50s. And the design came about, uh, it looks like a V, by the way, upside down, <laughs> if you don't know, um, because um, Seth was trying to figure out a way of propping a guitar against the wall without it falling over without having a stand how can you do that because there's a round bottom to old guitars except the flying v that has two little stands built in and that's how he designed it um it wasn't very successful at first i think um, um the records will show that but it became iconic and uh, later on in in years uh, when other very famous musicians would play it uh it became sort of an icon uh that it is today but interestingly enough um it all was because seth lover is trying to figure out how to prop it against the wall so it didn't fall over <laughs> there's your tidbit of the day makes you wonder if like should we do the square guitar should we do <laughs> yeah like what other shapes could we mess with here <laughs> i wonder did he design a case for it at that time too because i think they're still trying to figure out how to get past that <laughs> square peg round hole kind of thing yeah <laughs> uh and kind of going back a little bit to what you were talking about the end it's like all these uh all these people both seymour duncan and bill lawrence as well as Seth Lover and anybody else that's really mentioned it during this podcast, they were all, you know, so curious of how uh, these devices worked, but they just wanted to take them apart and like figure out how to put them back together, figure out how to make them better. And it's like, there's definitely a certain type of person that ha that looks at mm -hmm. something and goes, I wonder how that works. I wonder how I can fix that, how I can make it better. Uh, I don't necessarily have that gene, but I know several <laughs> people that do, <laughs> and I can picture them doing that too. Uh, so I think that that's kind of a unique quality that they have of just that, um, you know, interest and intrigue and wanting to kind of figure out how it all works out. Uh, so going back into our interviews, we're going to hear a little bit more from Seymour Duncan, uh, kind of as his career developed. And uh working in London for a while and meeting some fantastic musicians that he'll name drop, don't worry. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then kind of uh, going over to California and to the Topanga Canyon area. And of course we all know the kind of music in the sixties in the Topanga Canyon area. So we get to go and hear some stories about that. So uh, here is a little bit more from Seymour Duncan's interview. In about 1972, uh, Ruby Buchanan was touring with his record, and he said, Seymour, man, you know, you should be playing guitar. I said, well, I know. So uh, he said, I'm going to England, and then, you know, why don't you uh, meet me over there? So it was during the summertime. Uh, I went, I had left the TV station. I had gone to England and uh, met up with him and Wayne Bickerton at Polydor Records. And then at the time, I was... Uh, uh, I got hooked up with Polydor with a guy named Chris Harley, who was a singer for, uh, for Alan Parsons Project, and he's worked like Boy George done all the harmony guitar parts. He works with John Anderson, and we had a bunch of our own records out over there. And um, <clears throat> so I was doing, you know, recording at night. Then during the day, I started working for the Fender Soundhouse, which was on Tottenham Court Road, and I was working with Ivor Arbiter, 
who uh, was a, a U.S. or a Fender distributor for the U.S. Fender products. And uh, so he would distribute the Fender product all through Europe and the warehouse was over there in England. So while working there, um, I started doing a lot more uh, pickup winding. You know, I was really getting into it. And I had been working with um, uh, Jeff Beck over there. I had new Jeff Beck when he was touring the States with the Yardbirds. And then I got hooked up with Peter Townsend. I was working, uh, doing guitar stuff for The Who, uh, The Rolling Stones, um, uh, Susie Quattro, uh, Roy Gallagher. And Roy Gallagher and myself, we were doing sessions at Polydor Records for a Slade. We were backing up doing harmony guitar parts for uh, Van Slade. And Naughty had his 18-inch heels on his shoes and everything, which I thought was pretty cool, you know. And um, so anyway, I was uh, quite fascinated by that, you know. And then, um, you know, always I was always fabricating parts. I was uh, making five-way switches over at the Fender Soundhouse, you know, for guys. I was doing them for Gilmore and Beck, and because uh, uh, I had done rewinds for Jimi Hendrix back in the '60s when I was still uh, working like at Dodd Music Center and everything in, in uh, Cincinnati. And then um, uh, I would take the switches apart, and they're basically a three-way switch. And I used to pull the rivets out, put a couple more notches in it. So I, I came up with, you know, working with a five-way switch. So I started doing it for everybody, you know, and I was hand uh, manufacturing them. And then I was doing things with scraping the uh, potentiometers to change the actual tone and value of a potentiometer. So when you do like a volume tone control, you get a different type of roll and everything. And then uh, I built a, I had an old uh, telly that I sold to David Gilmore. And I wound the pickup and had flat poles in it. And he said it sounded like Roy Buchanan. So if you hear the record, have a cigar on one of the records, you'll hear that guitar and you'll hear, hear him doing the, the volume guitar things with that guitar. And that's where I started doing a lot. And I, I started winding. Uh, there, there wasn't really people winding pickups back then, you know. So it was a real novelty when I was at Defender Soundhouse. There was this, like, American guy winding guitar pickups. So uh, a band called Golden Earring came by and I did a Radar Love, you know, I did the pickups for that, you know, which, which was really cool, you know. So working over there, working with all these bands, uh, Peter Townsend would bring guitars into me that accidentally got smashed. Now he he would break guitars, as you, many of you know, on stage and a lot of the pieces would go flying. So he had this one Gretsch that just had a big crack in it, so I put a, a new top on it. Then I made a, a guitar for uh, Jeff Beck and it was just another telly body, and somebody had hacked it up and chopped it up a little bit. So I put, I had uh, two humbuckers that I brought over from, the, from Cincinnati, and the two humbuckers that were broken came out of a flying V that belonged to Lonnie Mack. And he, are you guys familiar with Lonnie Mack? He's, he's, a, he's a brilliant guitar player, a very big influence on Stevie Ray Vaughan. And uh, he did records like Memphis, uh, Down in the Dumps. Uh, he did a song called Why, a great singer. So I had been seeing Lonnie and I, I got these pickups. And uh, so I had them in England. So I wound them and I made the bridge one, I called it a JB, and the neck one, I called it a JM. Because Jeff Beck's favorite uh, character, anybody seen American Graffiti? was, a, was a John Milner, who had the, the roadster, the, the high boy, that he, he always loved that car. So when he would, I shouldn't be saying it, when he checks into a hotel, he always checks in as John Milner. And uh, this is one of his little secrets, you know. So anyway, uh, but, because I, I didn't want to call it the JB, I respected Jeff, and I have never called the JB the Jeff Beck model. 
and but everybody knew that when he did calls, we ended his lovers. That's the pickup that he used when uh, he played that song, you know. So throughout, I started really doing a lot of research. Uh, Fender was very, very important to me. Gibson, uh, I was a Gibson Warranty Center. They would fly me back, and I would do all the seminars. And they gave me a guitar, and they put it on a bench. He says, "Here's one you can you can take apart." And it was Les Paul's guitar, you know, his uh, one of his old. Uh, recording guitars that he had and he wanted a new fingerboard I uh, put on it or new frets I said okay well I'll take I'll, I'll do the frets you know and they, they said no come over here and they said saw the neck off and I, I just couldn't believe it that's what they did but that's what Gibson Guitar Company do you know they would just cut the neck off at the heel chisel out the channel and then take the rest of the fingerboard off maybe heat it with a little heating or steam iron and uh, pull it off, and then you just put a new neck on it, whole new neck, and then we touch it up and repaint it and everything. So that's, um, I couldn't believe that, you know, they would do that. But when a guitar was sent back to Gibson to say if it had a, like a cracked neck or cracked headstock, Les Pauls, a lot of them were, were headstocks were being cracked if they fell over. Uh, 335s, uh, maybe the, the jack got broken or cracked inside of the body or something. Every guitar that would go in, they would take all the parts off of it, throw them in the trash, like these 55 barrel, barrel uh, cardboard bins. And at the end of the week, they just empty them into a big dumpster and haul it off to the trash. And I just couldn't believe this, man, because I was so poor growing up that, you know, I'd save every screw, every, I, I'd go Saturday mornings around to, uh, uh, before trash collection got around, and I'd go find old TVs and radios people throw out, and I would pull all the capacitors out of it. Just so I had some capacitors to mess around, I'd make different tone circuits and everything. I was getting in a ham radio, so that was, you know, I wanted to make little preamps and everything. So um, by doing that, I, I just really, uh, I couldn't believe they were doing it. I said, well, what do you, I said, can I buy this stuff or can I get it from you? And then I forget the gentleman that I talked to, he said, yeah, yeah, we can, we can work out something, you know? So. I, I, they boxed up like 20 boxes for them and I paid like $150 and I just had like all these harnesses and switches and screws, I mean screws, gold screws are like, you know, uh, you, you die for it, you know. So I was getting tail pieces that were worn away and so I had all these pickups and a lot of me, a lot of pickups were broken and they may have gotten wet. I got a guitar from uh, the Jonestown Flood probably back in the, the 70s, you know. And, and the guitar they sent me, it was a 335, and the whole thing was just mud. And I had to get all the mud out of it, and I took the top off, and uh, had to redo all the pickups. So having all these parts to pull apart, and I would unwind them, and I'd count every turn. You know, I'd get like a little spool, and I'd have a sewing machine motor, and I'd derail it. So I, every pickup I got that came in, and then when I started doing rewinds, I started getting all kind of oddball pickups. And I would take everything apart, and I would measure it. So that gave me, uh, it's uh, reverse engineering, which is you know, basically pretty, pretty easy to do. But I, I got really quite involved with it and starting learning as much as I could, you know, about every pickup. So every pickup that I came in, that came in for winding, I'd save the wire. And a lot of times there's probably 50, 60% of pickups that come in that are broken can be repaired. So, you know, I saved so many, you know, vintage pickups for everything. And Albert Lee always said to me, so Seymour, I don't know what I'll do if my old 53 telly dies on me, you know, it's just like his thing is, is like unique sound. He recorded a lot of stuff with Emmylou Harris with it and um, just a lot of different bands. So everybody worries about that. So I started 
really getting involved in the rewinds. And then in uh, about 78, uh, my par uh, partner, Kathy Duncan, who was my wife, we're separated or divorced now, but she's still my partner. Uh, she would do the administration side of it. And then I would do all the, uh, the winding and, and doing all the specs on all the pickups. And I, I just had a warehouse, I would live in the warehouse. And I just had drawings and things everywhere, you know, because it was very important to me. I kept drawings of all this stuff. And then over the years, I met Seth Lever, who invented the Gibson humbucking pickup. And he worked with uh, Ted McCarty designing the Flying V, the Explorer Mod Modern, and uh, um, <clears throat> just worked on many different, you know, he did a lot of the amp circuits and everything. And uh, he, was, he was a brilliant man. And um, so I had been talking with him over the years and just trying to learn as much stuff. But for me, it was, uh, again, trying to give back, trying to help these players get the sounds that they wanted, you know. So we were doing things for the cars and Cheap Trick and, uh, um, uh, you know, a lot of the 70, 80 bands, you know, Loverboy from Canada, all these bands, I was starting to do a lot of custom pickups for them. And they all had their own little little taste of sounds that they wanted, you know, so they would try to tell me. And then <clears throat> my one big thing was when Billy Gibbons drove to Santa Barbara in a 34 uh, Ford, man, all black, this beautiful man. It's car, everybody's like following him down the street, you know. So he's like the Pied Piper when it comes to Santa Barbara. And um, so I started, you know, doing all, I came back from England and I, I landed in a, uh, Topanga, California. We were staying at Linda Ronston's house on uh, old Topanga Canyon Boulevard. And uh, there, you know, we were working with Bob Margoloff, Malcolm Cecil. They were producing this Chris Harley, Chris Rainbow, and myself. And um, they were also doing Mini Ripperton. They did the Isley Brothers. Uh, a lot of the, you know, they did Talking Book, Stephen Wonder with all that Moog stuff. And that's Bob Margoloff and Malcolm Cecil. So I started uh, doing all the guitar stuff with them, and then um, uh, I was working in Topanga, I was working in Woodland Hills at a place called J.B. Wilson Music, and this, this is kind of cool. There was another guy who would come in and hang out with a guy named Tim Gibson who was giving guitar lessons there. And this young guy, he was a few years younger than me, and um, it was Tom Anderson. And Tom Anderson is Anderson Guitars, as we know it today. And Tom Anderson uh, was working for Dave Schechter. And I was doing, making parts for Wayne Charvel. So it was like Wayne Charvel, Dave Schechter, and they were like the, the first parts accessory companies that really started. And, uh, and I was doing rewinds for Schechter. And all of a sudden, we all sort of branched off. Uh, Charvel started doing all his, you know, bodies and necks and everything. And he was doing pick guards. I was making all the brass saddles, doing the rewinds uh, for Schechter, making the, uh, uh, stuff for Dave and then Tom Anderson was working at Schechter and he started making bodies and everything so we all all branched off so I started Seymour Duncan you know it was basically research and I was just doing rewinds and then 78 I, I said man we need to make a humbucker mold so I sourced out where Gibson had theirs made because I figured theirs was the best place to go because I knew what guitar bobbins were all about Nookie Edwards how you doing sir back there yeah and uh, so for me, it was, it was a fun uh, time trying to uh, learn as much as I could, you know? And uh, didn't really have an education in guitar building, but just watching things and how things were set up. And then I, I really, really got into manufacturing, making every kind. My first pickups, I would 
trace it and I would cut it out with a bandsaw and then I would drill each hole out one at a time. And all my first Strat and Tele pickups and the P bays and Jasmine's were all made by hand. And I had a machine where I would punch out all the pole pieces. So I started developing a lot of machines that made it a lot quicker to manufacture. So as I, I went on, I just started uh, designing more pickups and more and more pickups. And uh, I'm up to like 790 different models. I mean, it's ridiculous, you know. And I feel so bad for my music dealers because, you know, basically I can make everything I want. And the, the neatest thing that I wish I would have had, you know, 20 years ago was I bought my universal laser engraver. And that thing, uh, for me, now I can do a, like a 13-pole pickup for somebody. And it would, it would take me a good you know, couple hours to, to draw it and then to fabricate it, to punch out the holes, to put the radiuses on it, and then to uh, make sure all the holes are lined up. And if I got one wrong, and I have to remake it again. So uh, now I can just do a drawing and cut it. So I mean, for me, that's it, really modernized what, I, what I've been doing. That was Seymour Duncan as we continue with the great podcast about pickups and uh, all the interesting characters that are involved with that part of the world. And you know, what's really kind of cool to me is one thing that's got to be obvious to everybody listening, the, the most important common denominator between Bill Lawrence and Seymour Duncan has got to be their passion for playing music. You know, that is at the root of why they take extra time trying to figure out how can we improve on something over and over and over again. I mean, these guys consistently improved on pickups and effects pedals and electronics in guitars and basses their entire careers. And I think that the reason for that is at the root of it is, hey, they want to try it out on stage. They want to see how it works. They want to share it with their friends. Hey, look what I can make do. You know, how this is how I can improve this. Or when friends come and say, we're having a problem with this, they love to be the one to figure out the solution. And I think that's really that great passion about the industry that we talk about so uh, often is, is sort of showing itself in spades, I think, during this podcast. Definitely. Uh and so for, uh, we're gonna listen to a little bit more, uh, the last segment of Bill Lawrence's interview. Uh, he's just gonna talk a little bit more about uh, the kind of the details of the, the magnets and designing pickups and he gets a little technical and I tried to follow as much as I could. <laughs> <laughs> but I think some of it went over my head, but hopefully it won't go over yours. Um, and then he's just gonna talk a little bit about just the overall history of the pickups and kind of reflect a little bit on that. So just interesting. Um, you know, uh, take on on the industry and of the pickups in general. So here is Bill Lawrence. In ferromagnetism or anti-ferromagnetism is that under the influence of a strong magnetic field, certain electrons orient the orient take this the, the orientation of the spin is different than in the neodymium in neodymium or in samarium cobalt and this brings a tremendously strong magnetic force especially in small volumes for instance a neonicum magnet is rated with a br of 12400 gauss and an earth state number of 640, which is called the HC. 
Well, we don't operate. That way. To operate the magnet perfect would be on a, on a Permian's coefficient of 18, that is B over R, B over H. Then the magnet would have about 10,000 Gauss El Nico and a coercive force of 555.55 infinite. <laughs> if we ever get that precise. But somewhere closer between 17 and a half and 18 and a half is where we get the maximum results. In reality, we don't. Because we would need a magnet that is way too big, way too heavy. But comparing, comparing the function of, of an Elnico magnet versa a samarium cobalt. I do it with horsepower on motors and automobiles. The whole magnet is the, is the weight of the automobile and the magnetic force is the horsepower. So in a nickel magnet, the relation between I need a tremendous horsepower, a tremendous size, you know, mm-hmm. to get the force. If I would make a Naonico motor for an automobile to get a hundred miles an hour, I would need, let's say, a 200 pound motor. We have a ceramic magnet, I would need only one third the weight. And with a samarium cobalt, I would end up probably with an extremely small magnet. But this is not quite correct. When we go in ideal dimensions that we can... I compare now in the use of pickups, because we don't, cannot put a 10-pound magnet in a guitar pickup. Now, if we have a 10-pound magnetic circuit with an Onico magnet, I get 10,000 Gauss. I can also get 10,000 Gauss out of a samarium cobalt at a fraction of the size. But regardless how much I increase the size, I cannot get over 10,000 Gauss with a samarium cobalt. With a samarium, with a ceramic magnet, I may get up to 4,000 Gauss, 3,500 Gauss, regardless what the dimension is. But at the small dimension, the, uh, the ceramic magnet gets a much higher reading than the Arnico magnet. It's easy to understand when you study the, the demagnetization curve. But when it comes by using these articles in guitar pickups, we have to take the second thing in consideration. Are we using the magnet as a core? If we use it as a core, <coughs> then we shall not have any coercive force in the magnet, in the core. The lower the coercive force in the core, the higher the output of the pickup. 
That's about as much as can be said about pickup design. Sure, when I want a certain, with certain materials available, I want to create a certain Fourier spectrum. I calculate at first the dimensions A over L. A is the cross section, and L is the induct is the height. Relation between length, that is the height of the coil, and A is the width of the coil, cross section. Then I figure out how many turns do I need, then I calculate the copper wire, which takes about two seconds. <laughs> then I have with the right, then I'm, but the copper wire is calculated already before because I need a certain inductance and I need a certain effective resistance. That is the resistance without eddy currents, in including the eddy currents. By knowing this, I have to design the cross section and the length of the core form. Then I calculate in how many turns goes in this cross section. It's common practice to use the same bobbin, put more, uh, more turns of thinner wire on. It's nonsense. We have to change. When we use thinner wire, we have to use the cross section and the length of the core form. And that can be mathematically achieved to get the maximum voltage out of a pickup. And don't forget in the old days when Leo Fender started, the pickup had only one purpose, to generate a voltage with the vibrating string, according to the frequency response, we got the vintage tone because we used an 8-foot cable with a capacitance of 200 picofarad, ideal. Small amps at low volume. There we had the sound on record, the microphone right away in the speaker. And to recreate this on stage is not possible. Not with the equipment that we use today. Neumann and his crew started in 1935 with experiment with low impedance systems. Somewhere in 1947, a, a major from the US Air Force brought a tape recorder with a Neumann mic to America. They started a company called Ampex. Ampex. Not the, speed, not the amplifier company, Ampex. Ampex. Made tape recorders and tape desks. By 1949, the whole American industry was recording with magnetic tape and the extended frequency response, and they called it high fidelity. By 1952-3, the whole world was on low impedance. Except the guitar industry today is still on high impedance. <laughs> um, a lot of things with Les Paul I disagree, but one thing we agree on. We should have gone low impedance in 1948 because his trick recordings he did on low impedance. And there you hear guitar sounds, not only on records, you could hear these sounds on stage. But we cannot convert anymore the industry to go with millions of guitars out high impedance and millions of amplifiers go to low impedance. Gibson started in 1965. With the, with the Les Paul recording and low impedance guitar. 
Well, the problem was the amp wasn't good. So you had to use a low impedance amp with, or they, you could switch them to high impedance by using the cheapest transformer money could buy. And even with a good transformer, it wouldn't have done much better because the, the amps didn't bring more. The speakers, what they went, five, six thousand hertz maximum. Now in the 50s, we used the old D130 JBL that had a beautiful frequency response where you got the ring of the sweet highs out of a guitar, what you couldn't get anymore later. The more the power came, volume and sound quality don't mix. Unless you use a small amp, excellent speaker systems and mic it with enough wattage to provide the sound generation with hundreds of speakers in a big room. By the same moment the speaker gets a certain volume, our ear cannot define anymore the frequencies. Hermann Helmholtz predicted this in the mid-1800s. Uh, they're talking today about who invented the humbucking pickup. It was invented not to be a pickup. Who was his first name? Nobile. Nobile Italian. Italian guy. He designed an ascetic governometer and to neutralize the magnetic force of the earth, which is different in each location, by using two coils, reverse polarity with two magnets combined with a with a rod. To neutralize external magnetic fields. So in the pickup industry, nobody invented the humbucking pickup. That is how to use it. Uh, the first guitar, the first pickup for magnetic instruments that was patented in the United States was done by a, I don't know, was sounded to me like Japanese, probably Japanese. He had three coils. One coil that was put to DC to create the magnetism, because permanent magnets at that time were not yet known. Loudspeakers in the 30s had still um, electromagnets. Mm -hmm. DC on a coil. There was not yet, Alnico was not yet in. And the material, what they had, 18% tungsten, what could you get out of it? 80 Gauss, 100 Gauss. Like a magnet that big in the first Charlie Christian guitar, what Charlie played, that went for almost from the bridge to there, 18% uh, tungsten steel with some vanadium in to magnetize the blade. So back, the pickup had three coils. was for violin. One to generate the magnetism, DC coil, and two coils with reverse polarity and reverse magnetism to neutralize the external, what we call the hum, external magnetic fields. So how they were made and how to defeat Mother Nature to get them more efficient, that was 
I don't know, in the early days, nobody cared about sound of a pickup. The sound was made by the amplifier. The amplifier was tuned. The input curve, the input um, audio curve was tuned after they had it in the guitar. So once again, that was Bill Lawrence on the Music History Project. And up next, we're going to be hearing from Seymour Duncan again, and he's going to be talking more about his time with Jimi Hendrix. And we thought this is the perfect time to plug a past episode that we had. Um, I don't remember the number exactly because we're past 100 episodes now, if you can believe it. Um, But we did a full podcast on Jimi Hendrix. It's called Remembering Jimi Hendrix. I think it's one of our most popular episodes, and it's just a great insight into the people that knew him and uh, what he was really like. So check that out if you get a chance. But for now, here is more of Seymour Duncan. I've had a chance to work with Chet Atkins and and Paul Yandel and work with uh, Jimmy Bruno and Brent Mason and uh, Steve Cropper, Al Cooper, you know, just all, all these great players throughout the years. And I don't know what or how I could have done it, you know. If I was just a guitar player, player trying to do it, it becomes almost like a competition thing. And, you know, you guys don't want to play with you because then you're going to take away their thing. But I'm like this sort of a neutral guy and I, I work for all these great players. So it really has worked out for Seymour Duncan making guitar pickups and working for. And a lot of these guys, you know, uh, like the cars, like when I did the Duncan Custom, uh, that pickup was designed for L.E. Deason. So he gets out and he's playing this pickup, and people say, God, how do you get that sound, you know? And then all of a sudden somebody else started using it. I was doing it for Nancy Wilson for Heart, from Heart. And um, so then it become an actual model, you know? And then I would do like a Duncan Distortion if I was doing some other band. That model became a Duncan Distortion. So a lot of the pickups were custom made for a particular person and then that model became a particular model. Like working with, uh, say, Brent Mason, who's a great session player in the Nashville area here, uh, I decided I was going to try using a combination of magnets. So I put Alnico 5 on the bottom three poles and then Alnico 2, then I would calibrate it and then it gave him like a nice bright snap but very smooth on the treble side. So it gave him uh, variance when he would bend, you know, he would have like one tone here, but then when he would come up here, he'd be playing the same notes, uh, but it would have a different tone to it. So that was kind of unique for him. And then I did a, a, a seven string stereo uh, humbucking pickup for Howard Morgan many, many years ago. And I, I made a split type of pickup. And I also did one for um, um, Chet Atkins a, a long time ago. And then, uh, oh, God, I can't think of the other player's name. But when, when you work with these players, you know, like working with Nookie Edwards from The Ventures, we're always coming up with some great things with him and, and playing around with ideas, and he's always designing new guitars. And So working with guys like that, and like with Nookie, he's recorded probably over 300 albums, and he just did, you know, 14 tracks yesterday alone. I mean, the guy's absolutely brilliant when he comes to, to playing, and the knowledge, and I say, okay, how'd you do this? You know, surf rider. He, he, he remembers them all, you know, which is pretty amazing, you know. And it, it's really neat doing that, you know, and, and trying to help. Now, uh, what I enjoy doing is like with the Seymour Duncan Company, we're doing like really unique preamps and blending systems and working with different types of tonalities of pickups. 
And many times, about six, seven times, I played with Jaco Pistorius, you know, down in Florida, Miami area. He would come to shows where I was playing, and we would play, and we'd, he'd be on the Hammond B3 playing something, or he'd get, pick up the bass. But I used to do, he wanted something, when he would play the fretless, when he was sliding up, it wouldn't uh, buzz too much, you know, you wouldn't hear it. So I would wind certain pickups for him where I could cut out certain frequencies. And then I started doing the Jerry Donahue pickup, and we started putting a capacitor in series with the coil. And nobody knows this, so they'll measure the pickup. Ah, the pickup doesn't work. But inside a coil, there's a, a capacitor in series, which will cut out some of the bottom frequencies, so it'll make it, a tele sound more like a Strat. So by experimenting and doing all these little things, you know, I've come up with you know a lot of you know different things. Um, back in the 70s, I worked for uh, Buzzy Feeton, and I designed the uh, the stack pickup for him. And I, I started working with coils and changing them, and then uh, he started using it. So when I got the patent on it, that was you know because of Buzzy. You know, he was always complaining. You know, the lights. He go into. He was playing with the Feeton Larson band. And always problem with lights and everything. So, for me, um, there was a, a band, Gino Vanelli. They were touring around many years ago, and uh, his guitar player came to me. He says, "You know what? I want to do something different. I want the gnarliest looking pickup you can make me." So that pickup was, I think, San Antonio, Texas, the uh, the pickup king down there. Because I, I did a seminar. And there's like 150 guitar players, and every one of them had invaders in their guitar. So, I mean, it was that time of year where these guitar players were just having a good time. But for me, uh, the fun part is designing, making a pickup, and then watching this guy go on stage and using it, you know. Uh, back in the 80s, uh, this other gentleman came to me. Uh, I didn't really know him too much. And he says, you know, I'm doing this record, you know, I got a record. And you always hear it, you know, we were doing a record, and I need something different for it. So I said, okay. I'll, I'll try something here. So he gave me this old Strat. It was a 59 Strat. He said, make some pickups for it, just something different. And um, so this guy recorded it, and it was uh, Maniac by Michael Sambello, and uh, he was using Flashdance. So when you hear the unique guitar solo, that was these two new pickups that I had designed for him. They were a version of a stack pickup, and I reversed some of the polarities on the pole pieces. And he got a real unique mid-tone out of it, which, which was really cool. And, and, and he did great with the record, so he was very happy. But what was really nice about him is uh, he came up to see me and he gave me the Strat, you know. So I thought that, that was just great. So I still have his old Strat, you know. And uh, back, I guess one of my big influences, you know, was, you know, Jimi Hendrix, Eric Clapton, and Jeff Beck, you know. So having a chance back in Cincinnati I had worked with Roger Mayer and I gave I made I did a bunch of rewinds and uh, Jimmy stuck him in his guitar when he was playing he was playing with a soft machine remember that band they were great uh, they did all the lights and I, I think it was I, I forget it was in a Greg Lake or somebody was in that band but uh, seeing and talking to these people you know and, and just and Jimmy you know he would show me a strat and then he would hit it and then he would pluck the strings on the back of the body and he said listen to this you know he hit it so hear that sound and he would bring his tremolo down he said, that's a cool sound isn't it like that you know and then he would like knock on the back of the guitar and then uh, he used to twist the pick and, and put it between the two strings then he'd be bending these strings would be quiet but he would bring the tremolo down and he would do this real quiet thing then he would pull the pick up and then it would like really pop loud 
and then he would he would growl it, and he would do one of his dive bombs. So we were in the back room just doing that stuff. I mean, he was showing me all this stuff, and then uh, there was a group, a company brought this guitar to Jimmy. It was all psychedelic painted, had flowers and all stuff on it. It was a semi-hollow body. It had split pickups with chrome covers on each one. It had push buttons to activate the pickups, and uh, it was it was it was funny, but. Jimmy goes on, he goes out to do a sound check, and uh, this guitar is like squealing, like, you know, a cat has its run over by a rollerblade or something. But the pickups were feeding back so bad, he would hit it and go, woo, woo, just by pressing the buttons now, and so he got a kick out of it. So I saw him, he put the guitar, the strap over one shoulder, and he faced the amp, and then he took that, he grabbed it by the neck, and he swung that thing as hard as he could, and he hit the Marshall amplifier, and that poor guitar went in the, like 8,000 pieces, man. I swear to God. And the guys that gave him the guitar were just saying, they just shook their head, they didn't know what to say. And they just, oh, Jimi Hendrix, Jimi Hendrix. And they, they started clapping their hands. There was nothing they could do, but I felt so bad for him, you know? But nobody's ever seen that guitar, you know? And, uh, but he, he did a routine with it, and it was pretty amazing, you know, just what he did. But the guy was great. He really liked talking guitar, so I really was trying to get as much information uh, as I could from him, you know, and just about that and the sounds and, and what he would adjust his pickups, and I said, why you do that, you know, because, you know, kind of this, and you can see the pole here, and he played a left-handed guitar, you know, he played a right-handed guitar, but he, he played it left-handed, and then the pole pieces were in a different position on the string, and a different angle to pick up would make it fatter sounding on the treble side, because you got a thicker sound out of it, and then it was a little bit brighter on the bottom side, so you could do that wind cries merry and just get, get all these different tones, you know, and he was really using the guitar, and I just, I always believed that, and uh, then I, when I would see Jeff Beck, when he was with the Yardbirds, you know, he'd do Trank Up a Rowan, I saw him on uh, uh, Beat Instrumentals, some old videos, you know, old scratchy instrumentals, and there'd be Jeff playing this old beat up uh, Fender Esquire, you know, and he had gotten it, he paid $60 for it from John Mouse from the Walker Brothers. So he bought this guitar uh, from him, and he did uh, Heart Full Soul, Trank Up a Rowan, like I'm a Man, and all this stuff, and he would do the, uh, he'd go, do the whistle thing and, and use the volume control as as a whistle of a train, you know. So I said, man, that guy's doing it too. He's he's you know using the guitar to the extent of what it can do. So that's why probably today I just play a guitar with one pickup because I said, man, I don't want to use two pickups because Jeff only used one, you know. So I always thought that was neat. So that's why I, I always have uh, one pickup guitar most likely. And then by designing different pickups. Uh, we did the stacks, we did the cool rails, we did the, we have a patent on the parallel axis. Uh, we did uh, the amplifier with modules in it. We started putting modules where you could change different preamps and change the location of the modules in the amplifier. And that way you could get different preamp stages when you're recording and everything. So we were coming up with a lot of bizarre ideas like that. And for me, it was a chance to really uh, make as many different tones as possible from a pickup. When we started um, uh, doing different des designs and started making more uh, pickups for the OEM market, we decided we were really going to focus on it. And I said, you know what, you know, you guys work in that area of doing the OEM and production, and I'm going to be working in a custom shop. So for me, it, it allows me to 
make like Troy Christian or the ES-150 pickups. I mean, there's so many different models now that I'm making. And, uh, uh, and it's because I, I wanted to create things that weren't around anymore. You know, a lot of guys were making guitars, but they said their pickup's vintage. And I said, you know, their pickup doesn't look like a vintage pickup. And to me, it doesn't sound like a vintage pickup. So I started trying to do my own thing, you know. So uh, that's probably why I have so many different models, because there's so many variations. I mean, pickups were made all over the place, all different ways. Each week, if a different winder was winding it, it would sound a different way. So I wanted to find out why things were doing it. So that's why you know, we have some coils that are uh, with age magnets, non-age magnets, where I can degauss them to change the tone, the flux field, the amount of power coming out of it, you know. I find OPAS that had very, very weak magnets, you know, and you recharge them, they would sound like a very new bright pickup. But a lot of guys wanted that old Dickie Bet sound, so I came out with the antiquities. And I started uh, making new pickups that looked like they were 50 years old, and everybody thought I was nuts. They said, what's this guy doing? You know, we don't want to put these old pickups on new guitars, you know, and it just, just didn't look right, you know. So as I started manufacturing, you know, people said, you know what, you know. And then I started getting, you know, back, and then Billy Gibbons, man, started buying them, and then uh, Dickie Betts, all these guys started, you know, getting it. And, and those, to me, were like, the guys who knew what I was trying to do, and I was getting the support from these guys, you know. And uh, and some of my dealers were saying, why, you know, we got this pickup in, man. You sent us the wrong pickup. It's all it's got dust on it, and the cover's all worn out. And they were sending them back to me because they thought they should be shiny and new and stuff, you know. And I just said, nah, no, it's just different, you know. Well, that does it for uh, this week's episode on pickups. And I have to say, I learned a lot. Um, Kind of going back into what you were saying, Dan, before uh, I played saxophone growing up, so definitely didn't know that much about the guitar. I mean, I knew it, but, you know, uh, so it was great to kind of learn a little bit more about the details and just all the different nuances that you can get with pickups. And now I'm never going to look at uh, electric guitar or bass the same way again, because I'm going to know all this additional info and know who created these things, which is awesome. And uh, it's like you said before, it's fantastic that we were able to get these two interviews and really get a good insight of uh, of the industry. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's also um, a good opportunity to uh, give a couple of shout outs to all those who help us with these interviews, because without the help, it's it's nearly impossible to connect with everybody that we want to connect with. Uh, a special thanks to our friends at the Framus Museum in Mark New York in Germany, who helped us with the Bill Lawrence interview. That was awfully nice of them to help us. So thank you guys very much for that. And with that, I just want to thank you guys um, for your help, uh, Ashley, in doing all the prep work and uh, Mike for doing all the post-production work. It's, it's a great... Uh, uh, opportunity for us to get together and do this, even if we are sequestered at home. But uh, <laughs> this video is a really exciting opportunity for us, and I appreciate it. And I have two quick final thoughts. The first one is, if you're on the NAM website already, because of course you are, um, check out the pickups tag, because Bill Lawrence and Seymour Duncan, while great, we're just scratching the surface of people we've interviewed that have developed pickups or innovations for guitars. Um, and it's just amazing. So check out the pickup tag, scroll through it for hours and just get lost. It's totally <laughs> worth it. I promise. 
And the other thing I wanted to say too is if you're a like young aspiring guitarist and you're really into like getting new guitars and stuff, um, take a look at some that you already have and look at the pickups a little closer. Maybe think about swapping them out because that is that just opens the door to so many different kinds of sounds and tones you can get from your instrument. Um, and it gets very addicting very fast. So <laughs> I'm sorry if I just, you know, started something, but swapping out pickups is, is something that guitarists will do forever. And it's, it's a lot of fun. So thank you everyone for listening. Um, we've enjoyed this very much and we hope you have as well. Tune in in two weeks for our next episode. And until then, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Music History Project. This has been Mike Mullins, Dan Del Fiorentino, and Ashley Allison. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. If you have recommendations for future episodes, just shoot us an email at library at nam.org.